Welcome to the Fabulously Keto podcast aimed at improving health, vitality and quality of life. Eating real food in a ketogenic lifestyle. I'm Jackie Fletcher and I'm based in the UK. And I'm Louise Reynolds, an Aussie currently based in Bangkok, Thailand. Each week we will be bringing you guests who share their stories and discuss a range of topics which we hope will improve your health and well-being. Many of the guests, like us, came to Keto for Weight Loss and have stayed for their well-being, numerous health benefits and because they are living their best lives. We hope you will be inspired to incorporate these ideas into your own health journey so that you can feel better than you ever have before. Thinking about starting keto? Take a listen to episode number two, What is Keto and How to Start? Welcome to episode 139 of the Fabulously Keto podcast. And before we get into talking about our guests, I wanted to mention again about the sponsored swim I'm doing. Um, The challenge, so I'm swimming six kilometres down a river in Devon. Um, The challenge is not only the distance, it's the fact of being in cold water for a couple of hours. Because although I might have a little bit of protection, I won't be wearing a wetsuit. So that's my biggest challenge is being in the water for that long, um, in cold water for that long. So I want to say thank you for Dr. Don Mack, who's one of our podcast listeners and Patreon supporters. But my challenge to myself was to get 250 people to sponsor me one pound, just one pound. And so far, I haven't had one person just give me one pound or one dollar. So I'm really, really asking all of you to just donate or what's the word, pledge, support the charity with one pound or one dollar, whether that's a US dollar, a Canadian dollar, an Australian dollar, or the equivalent in your monetary system. So please go to uh, https colon forward slash forward slash www.justgiving.com forward slash fundraising forward slash Jackie, J-A-C-K-I-E, dash Fletcher 2, number 2. And when you put your name up, it asks for your name, then just let me know, even if it's only your first name, but just put in podcast listener so that I know that you're a podcast listener and I can give you a shout out on the podcast each uh, on the week that it comes up. And what the charity is trying to do is help children with disabilities learn to swim. So it's a fabulous charity. And all it is, is one pound, one pound, one dollar. The idea is about a pound in in sterling, about a pound um, or a dollar or a US dollar or Australian dollar, Canadian dollar, whatever it is, just one of them would be fabulous. My challenge is to get 250 people to do that. And you could be one of them. So going on to today's podcast, today I'm interviewing Ali Houston, who's been on before, and Dr. Rachel Brown. So Ali contacted me and asked if he could come back on. He told me he and Rachel are specialising in mental health. 
So I was really keen to get them on. So here's a bit about Ali and Dr. Rachel. Ali Houston, a former physicist who fixed his brain with food, after adopting a ketogenic diet seven years ago, he changed career to empower others to turn their health around like he did. Dr. Rachel Brown is a consultant psychiatrist and certified functional medicine practitioner. Dr. Brown is an advocate for metabolic psychiatry and the use of nutritional ketosis in the treatment of major mental disorder. Dr. Brown is trained in the use of ketogenic diets for mental disorder by Dr. Georgia Ede and is a published author in this field. She is also a nutrition network advisor and is a coach for metabolic mental health strategies at metsy.com. That's M-E-T-P-S-Y.com. So let's go and hear from Ali and Rachel. Welcome, Rachel and Ali, to the Fabulously Keto podcast. It's fabulous to have you with us today. Thank you. Nice to be here. Thanks, Jackie. And Ali, you've been with us before on episode 33. But Rachel, you haven't been on, on the Fabulously Keto podcast yet. But we always start with where in the world are you? So, Rachel, you go first. Yeah, so um, I'm in Edinburgh. So Scotland, for anyone who doesn't know where that is. <laughs> And Ali? I'm in Glasgow, which in a way is close to Edinburgh and in another way is a different world, <laughs> depending on who you ask. Healthy yeah. competition. <laughs> yeah, just up the M8, eh? Exactly, yeah. The the old one is in Glasgow, you knock on someone's door, they'll say, have you had your dinner? And then in Edinburgh, you knock on their door and they say, you'll have had your dinner. <laughs> but I don't think that's true. Probably very generous. Rachel's very generous in spirit. <laughs> so, Rachel, why don't you start by telling us how you came to low carb, what brought you here, and and a bit about you and your journey? Yeah, sure. Um, gosh, it's been quite a long journey. So, I I first came to low carb probably in around about the year two thousand or thereabouts. So, I remember I was still at university and. Um, a close family friend had visited from America and it was when Atkins was just really all the rage again. Um, I don't know if he'd just come out with another book at that time, but that's when I first really heard about it and kind of dove into doing Atkins. And then over the years, I've been a huge follower of Mark Sisson and um, for Mark's Daily Apple. And um, I've had time when I've veered away and been a bit less low carb and and followed other sort of dietary strategies um, for reasons I can come on to um, but probably for the last 12 or so years that I've been doing a kind of primal type diet and that gradually moved into a more ketogenic um, strict keto diet probably six or seven years ago and um three and a half coming up for four years I transitioned into carnivore myself which I still consider to be keto um but just a slightly different version <laughs> yeah and um so what differences did you notice going from primal to keto and keto to carnivore yeah so I I decided to get more serious about keto just because of um a family history of um, neurodegenerative conditions and just thinking a bit more about my kind of future health and so on and 
Um, yeah, I, to be honest, I don't know, because it, it's been such a long time, I don't know if I can pinpoint something necessarily that was hugely different going keto other than it really helped with my sugar addiction issues um, in comparison to primal. So when I was still primal, I found that I was tending to snack in the evenings and still having quite a lot of kind of very dark chocolate, but some of it was 70%. So obviously still a fair amount of sugar and carb in that. Um, so keto definitely helped with kind of food cravings and in particular kind of sweet sugar cravings. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, and then carnivore took that to another level for me personally. Was there a specific reason you moved to carnivore? Um, purely curiosity. Okay. So <laughs> I came across that from uh, Vanessa Spinner, um, so ketogenic girl, and I, I really admire a lot of her work and had using some of her recipes and, and meal plans and it was just one day in social media I saw her posting and she was doing her own carnivore experiment and I just absolutely never come across it before that moment when she posted something on social media and uh, I thought probably what a lot, a lot of people think which is that that's absolutely crazy what is she doing um, but then I knew she knew her stuff and respected her views and I thought okay I'm gonna look into this a bit more yeah so tell our listeners a bit about your work experience and you know how keto low carb carnivore sort of mixes in with that because back in 2019 I was at the public health collaboration conference and there was a um a doctor there called Pratima Singh who worked with people in mental health and she was explaining how important it is for mental health so tell us a bit about what you do and how you work with patients around that if you do at all I don't know if you can yeah sure um so at the moment I'm a consultant psychiatrist in the NHS full-time and I'm working within a crisis service so um we're the kind of acute point of contact for people who are in a mental health crisis who otherwise in days gone by would have been admitted to hospital so the team's an alternative to hospital admission so so really some of the sickest um population in terms of people who are in contact with psychiatric services and I've been doing that for a number of years now and I trained with uh, Dr Georgia Ede in 2021 um and that that's really influenced my practice particularly laterally so um I I take a much more detailed history from people now in, in terms of their diet and what they tend to be eating, whereas in years gone by, it would have been focusing more purely on appetite. And is your appetite normal or is it reduced, you know, in the context of depression, screening questions along those lines? Um, however, now I, I do tend to, to speak to people more about their diet. Um, I have to use my judgment as to if that's appropriate or not, because um, when somebody's in a crisis, it's not always the best time to speak about that stuff. And there could be all sorts of complications around um, people's motivations and, and the associations they have with food and family. And, you know, is it the right time for them? So I need to use a bit of um, quite a lot of judgment, just professional judgment about that. Um, but I have had people who are very interested in particularly a ketogenic diet for the benefits it can have. In relation to mental health and um, thinking about severe and enduring mental health mm. and that um, I'm, I've been involved in some local research as well so there was a pilot study looking at the ketogenic diet in bipolar disorder 
Um, so I'm part of that research team. So that's a really exciting development to say yeah. the least. <laughs> yeah, we need some things like that. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, and it's um, I haven't had a huge amount of people who've necessarily I've been able to follow up purely because the part of the service I work within, it's very short-term contact that we have with people. Mm. However, I, I do have some stuff in the works about being able to offer some follow-up specifically to think about metabolic psychiatry approaches to mental health. And um, I'll hopefully have some exciting announcements to make about that in the near future. Yeah, that's exciting. So Ali, maybe you just want to, because we've, we've done a bit of your story in episode 33, maybe you want to just quickly go through what you told us then. And if people want to listen more in detail, they can go back to that episode and then bring us up to date because that was a couple of years ago now, I think. Sure, yeah. So I was I, I was a physicist originally. I, uh, I got a physics degree having worked in high-end restaurants for a few years. Um, and very interested in food but uh, in the kind of um whole cuisine sense you know um i worked in a restaurant where we served lobster thermidor and all these uh, fancy desserts with amazing sugar work and um you know made our own truffles and everything um and i worked you know as a manager in front of house in restaurants that served food like that um so i had quite broad horizons food wise and ended up, as I say, going to uni and doing physics. So um, I had this scientific training in understanding the world in a very specific way. And threading through my whole life up to that point was a series of illnesses of varying type and severity, including anxiety, depression, autoimmune problems, and it kind of culminated in a, a an adult ADHD diagnosis when I was studying for a, a PhD in physics, and I was unable to concentrate properly. I wasn't producing very good work. You know, I'd got a, a really good undergraduate degree, in spite of having bouts of anxiety, depression, extreme inability to focus, um, but I just couldn't function well enough to do anything useful with my PhD time. And I was fortunate that my supervisor, a brilliant uh, now retired physics professor called Ken Strain, had healed his chronic fatigue syndrome, ME, using diet. Mm. He was told when he was in his early 40s that he would never work again. And, um, you know, such a devastating diagnosis, especially given that it was really his mind that was affected and someone who thought for a living. Uh, he found Gary Tobbs, um, had a go at keto, and within six months he was running 10Ks again. So wow. it was really incredible. And he developed this very deep sideline in nutrition research and was able to uh, not tell me what to think, but tell me how to think around these subjects. And I think that's very powerful. He um, pointed me in the right direction and I ended up, reading around all of this and uh, diving into it. And I was scared for the first six months. You know, I thought, oh, when's my heart going to explode? We've been told for years that if you eat all this fat, then it's it's really bad for you. And that's someone with a scientific background who'd read the research and was convinced that actually it was a good idea. So 
I, I get why it's so hard for people to make a change, which is culturally and socially um, and to some extent seemingly scientifically unacceptable or bad. Um, but I did that in spring 2016, so about seven years ago now. And within weeks, many of the most acute problems I had, um, including you know, um, gut problems, um, sleep problems, dreadful heartburn, um, anxiety, depressive mood, inability to focus, they went away. Yeah. And um, I had my brain back. And it was, it was really profound. Uh, you know, it, 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 I, I don't think people could really understand how profound. I could tell them and they could see there was a really interesting change in me and positive change and they were happy for me. But they couldn't feel that quantum leap. And I think at that point, I knew that I would change career and help people to do what I'd done, uh, whether that's, you know, writing the cookbook that I did with my friend John Meekin, who's a brilliant chef, or um, creating low-carb food that people can eat to help them sort of bridge away from, from if they're sugar addicts, um, or what I do now, which is coaching people and really helping them to make a change that can be very difficult given the obstacles that are in place whether that's personal addiction issues to food, whether it's because none of their friends or family really support a change like that, mm -hmm. uh, or their doctor even sometimes. Yeah. So um, I've, I've, I've decided to niche down into mental health rather than a more generalized approach around weight, although I do coach people around that too, because it was the change in my mental health which was the most profound for me. And that's where, that's where I find myself now is, um, kind of having chats with people in the community around what we can do to help and uh, Rachel and I decided it would be great to work together for various reasons you know uh, I really respect what Rachel does and um, I think our ideas about what are sensible things people can do by themselves align really well and um, and I think it's really nice that we're both Scottish because Scotland's been seen as kind of the sick man of Europe for a long time. There's this thing called the Glasgow effect where even compared to other sort of northern post-industrial cities like Liverpool, Glaswegians die younger. And there's this sort of horrible statistic where if you go from the West End and take the train, every stop you, you lose a year of life expectancy. Mm. And there's people in Glasgow who there's ma males in Glasgow who have a lower life expectancy than than uh, males in Baghdad. You know, it's just it's an absolutely dreadful situation. And mental health reflects metabolic health so clearly. Yeah. Um. That there's a there's a there's a crisis here, and so I think we wanted to. I'll, you know, Rachel can speak to this as well. I don't. Um. You know, know the full story of why she chose to work with me, but. Um, yeah, I think that kind of sums up why where I'm at, where I came from, and why I want to work with Rachel and what we're doing just now. So do you have any theories about round why, other than deep fried Mars bars, why the health in Scotland is worse than maybe Northern England? And 
is it just in the big cities or even if you go further out is that still the case rachel um well my first thought unfortunately is alcohol and drugs um so scotland's got horrendous statistics in terms of drug dependence and alcohol use um social deprivation comes into it always but um yeah I, I i don't really know beyond that because obviously diet is a factor but i suppose i don't feel all that hopeful particularly about the rest of the uk either just in terms of where we're the perspective we're coming from so uh, don't know ali if you've got other thoughts i would echo all of that i found out recently that scotland is actually the per capita cocaine <laughs> consumption capital of the world <laughs> which is a dreadful yeah. statistic yeah. and um i think there may be a vicious loop between that statistic and our latitude you know we are just that little bit higher up uh without vitamin d than the, even the north of england um which i think makes a difference you know i think there's some decent evidence that all-cause mortality tracks with latitude so that the less sun you have the the, the younger you die and um i think uh that's offset a lot by you know outdoor rural um living where you can avoid um alcohol and drugs and have a a, a cohesive social network but that's harder and harder in modern life in expensive cities and um what makes Scotland different I think is perhaps this extra drug and alcohol and uh latitude problem yeah and I'm guessing so you've got the latitude problem lack of vitamin d as you said um our the ongoing education that we have around low fat um and the calories in calories out model all puts sort of pushed together to affect hormones um which in turn is going to affect brain health and health in general all those things are going to come together so you've got stacking you're stacking all the negative things one on top of the other i guess and add to that you know maybe financial deprivation as well yeah and i feel like we all have different types of hunger and when i'm talking to clients about you know food hunger it's usually centered around hunger for calories hunger for uh, amino acids so protein and then hunger for micronutrition like uh, vitamins and minerals but then you know that can be derailed I'm, I'm in favor of intuitive eating when we're talking about those three types of hunger mm -hmm. um, and trying to be in tune with uh, feeling these types of hunger and I think you can get to know these types of hunger really well but it can be derailed by um, different types of hungers you know an addictive hunger and where does addiction come from I mean again we talk about vicious circles but it's it's easy to see how um, loneliness or isolation social isolation or a history of trauma can feed into um, disordered eating in lots of different ways mm. and um, I think you know these have to be noted you know that there's a 
there's a there's a, a kind of a trend a lot of the time in in the diet world to just talk about um ourselves as mechanistic only and not as human beings yeah and i think that's a really important thing about coaching which helps to you know connect a human being with another human being and i think that's why things like weight watchers and um and slimming world help people to lose weight sometimes you know it doesn't necessarily help them in the long run because i don't think the information part about the mechanistic bit is very good yeah. with them yeah but they get people together and support each other and i think that's that's a start yeah. um yeah so you know all of these things feed into it yeah and i think if you go back maybe even only a hundred years we would have been in much more social communities probably not in not that many big cities or the cities weren't that big so we would have had lots of social connections and lots of you know going down the pub and talking and working together and all these things and over the last hundred years we've really been pushed to be more isolated for women to be more independent and manage without a man you know in the sense of getting married and creating a family so we're seeing lots more changes around our society and how our societies are set up, which is almost pushing people to be more isolated. I guess that's a big thing. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think isolation is, is just one of the worst. Um, I don't know if emotion is the right word, um, but just in terms of the stress response that you actually elicit in the body, um, I'm sure there've been research studies out there. It's been a while since I looked at them, but just showing that isolation is just one of the biggest issues by far um, from a mental health point of view, never mind anything else. Mm. Other physical health outcomes too. So Rachel, have you seen an increase in mental health issues after the lockdowns? Absolutely, 100%. I mean, um, it's as though the issues just continue and continue. So. Um, for the last few years, um, it's been people in crisis because of lost businesses, and um, but also some people who've just not come out of their houses for a good couple of years. Um, people working from home who who develop anxiety disorders at the thought of having to go outside again or to return to the office to work. Um, and we went through a spate of. It was interesting over the last couple of years. There just seemed to be waves at different times like peaks of certain types of people coming through our service including people many people with acute psychotic illnesses who'd never had a history of psychosis in their life they weren't drug users there, there wasn't really any other explanation apart from stress-induced psychosis um, and quite severe symptoms at times mm. so ha, ha, is there a treatment or a way of helping these people especially if it's something that's something fairly new that's come about maybe through the lockdowns? Yeah. Oh, yeah. So, I mean, I think support's a huge part of it. So in terms of the service I work in, we'd be seeing people daily um, or every couple of days, just depending on their needs. Um, there's that psychosocial support that people get, um, but also medications come into it. And there's, there's kind of all sorts of ways out. And, and thankfully, um, I can't think of a single person who hasn't managed in terms of the people that we've seen um, to recover and make some progress, but it it doesn't necessarily mean that people have managed to get back to their kind of pre-morbid level of functioning. 
yeah. um, because because of all the other societal impacts of lockdown. Mm. So now that you two have come together and you've created a mental health coaching program, do you want to tell us a little bit about that? Sure. I'll let you go first, Sally. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, sure. So when we started talking about what we would do, we wanted to make it clear that we advocate for metabolic psychiatry. So I'm not a psychiatrist, but the idea behind metabolic psychiatry is that our metabolism, which is how we get nutrients and energy and uh, use it, is vital in dictating what our mental health is like. And that this is where we want to focus our efforts. So our website is called metsy.com, M-E-T-P-S-Y, and it's founded on those principles. Yeah, And we wanted to give people as much access to us as we could. Um, I'm a one-to-one specialist mental health coach. Both Rachel and myself have been trained by Dr. Georgia Ede. And um, we also wanted to offer small group sessions. So that's something that we are offering. We have a waiting list for that at the moment. And we also wanted to offer... A, mental health course that people could kind of teach themselves with you know we think there's um, a lot of a lot of um, a lot of room for people to take the information that's good information and work with it themselves and maybe get some uh, input from us periodically so this mental power course will give eight modules of really high quality proven information and techniques about how people can improve their mental health with the principles of metabolic psychiatry. Yeah. And yeah. Rachel and I will be there for live Q&As. And so it's a bit lighter touch, but some people that's what some people want. And so it really offers a full spectrum of support um, with this really high quality information, but something that is personalized to the individual, which we both think is really important. So they work through the modules by themselves and then they come to a Q&A, how often? Weekly. Weekly. That's the plan, so yeah. This is, this, the, course is, the course is launching later this year. So um, each module is a fusion of a coaching principle, which will allow the client to really personalize the approach. And it's fused with high quality information based on chapters from Rachel's book and from wider reading that both of us have done around metabolism, mental health, ketogenic diets and the like. Mm, yeah, fabulous. And that that gives people access to the information, but also to you to, to you know, if they're not understanding or not managing something or they need some help, specific help around a particular topic to get that extra help. Exactly. Yeah. I, I, is that how you see it, Rachel? I'm curious. <laughs> yeah, definitely. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I don't disagree with any of that. Don't worry. Um, yeah, I, I suppose I was just thinking there. I I feel really passionately that um, it is about getting the scientific information out there to people and reliable information, as Ali has said, because 
although the field of metabolic psychiatry isn't large at the moment, it is gathering momentum and pace and hopefully there will be more research coming. Um, but it's based on very sound principles in terms of the research literature. And unfortunately, just with the way health services work um, and doctors being very busy people, the majority of psychiatrists out there and, and mental health professionals aren't really aware of this information. And, and so they won't be able to pass it on to the people who need it the most. And um, that's why I set out to write a book last year, because I often feel in my in my role that I'm in, I don't have enough time to tell people everything it is that I really want to tell them. And I suppose this course is another way of bringing all of that information to life and actually letting people have the opportunity to ask both of us questions and troubleshoot and, as Ali says, individualise it. So it is very much about um, people working out for themselves what it is they need to prioritise, what are their goals and what do they need to do to get there, what, what kind of support do they need and really for us to just cheer people on in, in terms of taking some control back in terms of their health. Yeah, fabulous. So who who might be so if somebody's listening to this podcast now um and that might be just a an, a person like myself do I ident- identify that I need some help or it might be a healthcare professional who maybe in their capacity at work either doesn't deal with mental health or doesn't have the capacity to take on any more knowledge or or help a person how can you help you know, who's it for and how can you help them? Who's yeah, well, I, I'll, I'll, I'll say something and then I'm sure I'm sure Rachel will have more to say, but um, diet and lifestyle has already been shown to help anxiety, depression, ADHD, OCD, binge eating, bipolar, schizophrenia, people who have these mental illnesses can find help by changing their diet and lifestyle. We're not promising that any individual with any of these will definitely get better if they change their diet and lifestyle. But we are aiming this site at people who have a mental illness and who want to take more control. Um, It might also be instructed to say who it's not for. And, you know, we don't um, think it's right to coach people online who are going through a mental health crisis at the time or who feel acutely suicidal. So if people have these mental illnesses but you know don't fit into that, that la- those latter categories, then we think that we might be a good fit. Mm. Um, and like you say, talking to clinicians is something we want to do because we've had um, interest from doctors around the world, really, from Australia to America and in the UK, who want to make this kind of service available to their patients, people who are maybe uh, going through mental ill health and want to speak to someone who can specifically gear their diet and lifestyle towards that. And so we want to take those referrals for sure. Yeah. And that would that would be a great way if they're too busy to to deal with it. That would be a good resource for them, wouldn't it? Yeah. What do you think, Rachel? Yeah, I mean, I would add to that. Um, 
it doesn't even necessarily have to be people with a formal diagnosis of mental illness. So I think there's a huge amount of symptom burden out there in terms of things like brain fog and and low level anxiety. Although, you know, what is low level anxiety to one person might mean something completely different to the next. But I, I suppose I'm just thinking about if people have any sorts of difficulties um, in terms of energy and um brain function and anxiety or, or mood difficulties because there's lots of treatments out there that can help but there's also lots of people who don't get better or who don't want to take certain treatments and lifestyle and diet is absolutely an option that I think should be explored it's just unfortunate it isn't really emphasized in the in the current um, model of care really mm. yeah I, I want to sorry I want to point out as well that I do work one-to-one -one with people who have um, either brain fog or you know want to uh, sort out weight issues and the mental side is a, um, a kind of part of what they want to do but it's not the main thing and it's not really the mental side which is holding them back fully and I think it's appropriate for them too like Rachel says but also people who are under the care of uh, a prescriber whether that's the GP or a psychiatrist we can work with them too but the psychiatrist has to be, or the prescriber has to be on board. It, sh it should be a team effort in that regard because the ketogenic diet is is powerful. And I think, you know, you have to be aware that you might need to taper off drugs or that the um, th there may be a, a fluctuation in the requirement over the, the short to medium term. Um, Rachel can probably speak more specifically to that, but that's... that's um, that, that's a good thing you know if the, if the if the intervention is powerful then i think it's a sign you're on the right track yeah there was two two things that came to mind as you were as you were talking there and one is um i interviewed dr karen malone and she was on a few weeks ago and she was saying how you know they're they're a gp practice and they're very focused on metabolic health and lifestyle before medication and she said, was saying how there is the the problem when they refer someone to an endocrinologist and the endocrinologist is telling them to do something different in terms of lifestyle or nutrition that conflicts with what they're saying. And then the patient doesn't know what to do. So if you're saying you work, you can work with the psychiatrist or the prescriber, that's going to be so much more beneficial for the patient and ultimately what we want is the patient to heal and do well um rather than having these conflicts going on all the time and especially if it's around mental health if you've got conflicts going on that's going to be a massive problem for the person you know the patient the person involved um so that was one thing i wanted to mention and the other thing i was going to say um I would never have considered myself to be depressed or have mental health issues. But the difference in my mental health since I've been low carb, which has been six years now, is massive. And it's it's only in small ways. So, it, you know, I didn't have any mental health issues and I don't think I was particularly depressed. But my my whole outlook on life has completely changed. And I, I say that at, at that time, I just didn't have any motivation. I didn't think I had willpower. I didn't have 
anything that I particularly wanted to do. You know, I just was plodding through life, doing day-to-day things and not really thinking about how I wanted my life to be because I believed that I didn't have any motivation. I believed that I didn't have any willpower and that I couldn't do it and and all these things. And, and it was it started around weight, but it sort of permeated out into my whole life. And how, you know, when I look now to where I was six years ago, it's such a massive change. Um, so even just by changing my diet, and yes, I've reduced weight, but it's affected all areas of my life and everything that I do and things that I thought I would never do, I do now. It's 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 really incredible. So you don't even have to have massive mental health. You don't have to have a mental, like Rachel said, a mental health diagnosis. It's it's how do you feel? Do you feel you need some help? And I, I think that just illustrates perfectly why we decided to call our, our signature course what we're calling it in terms of mental power, because um, I think the potential for people out there to benefit and just optimize their well-being and um, you know, thinking about professional people as well, that there are going to be people who want to just be on top form in terms of performance and how they're functioning in life, but also, you know, anyone else. Um, if it if it's able to improve everything that you've just said for yourself there, then then I think the potential is absolutely massive. Yeah, I think so too. This is something that I've been talking about online a bit recently, where. Um, in the sort of mechanistic sense, again, thinking like a physicist uh, rather than a coach, people are talking about satiety per calorie as a, as a way to potentially tune your diet. And I think uh, you end up with situations where like broccoli wins because, you know, it's got hardly any calories in it. So, it, it, you know, in a sense, if you're tuning it to satiety per calorie, you should just eat broccoli all the time, um, which is not ideal maybe. So I think I like to think in terms of the other side of the equation, because we think about energy and energy out, they have to match, but you you can tune the energy out part of it by what foods you put in. So you can actually jack up the amount of energy that you're producing by positively, uh, you know, affecting what foods you're, you're, you're choosing to put in. So I find that if I eat a lot of beef dripping, then I feel warmer. So I, my, my temperature goes up, I have more mental energy and I feel spontaneously like exercising. So that for me is mental power. Mm. It's, to, it's to optimize for the sort of warmth per calorie rather than satiety. Per so how, how, do you, how do you up your beef dripping? I'm guessing you're not just sitting there eating spoonfuls of it like <laughs> I can eat spoonfuls of butter. Yeah, it's, I, find, I find the same with butter. I can eat quite a lot of that. Uh, unprovoked but I, I find that butter gives me I think you know with my history butter gives me some autoimmune things and maybe even I'm pretty sure it gives me some uh, mental side effects which is quite interesting dairy's got a you know depends on the type of dairy uh, there's this strange irony that when I eat blue cheese I feel blue afterwards um mm. and so so I don't eat it yeah. uh but yeah um I get my fat up in various ways and you know, I find that the sort of secret weapon is to use some um, some acid. So, you know, Mediterranean cooking, it's usually lemon juice or lime juice, but um, I, I tend to use vinegar. You know, my favourite for people in the UK is uh, is the sherry vinegar from Morrison's. 
and <laughs> this just goes with everything. So I'll I'll fry I'll fry some fish in uh, beef dripping, a few dashes of the sherry vinegar, and some you know four or five poached eggs. Heaven. Uh, <laughs> or, I was just or, thinking that's very Glasgow Alley. <laughs> I don't know why. I know I'm 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 still finding a way to deep fry my fish and have it with salt and vinegar. <laughs> <laughs> But you're not having your Mars bar fried, though. I could take it. <laughs> no, still, I've not managed to hack that. Although I've, I don't know if you saw the the, um, the experiment I did recently in October, where I just ate McDonald's burger patties and egg yolks, and I felt brilliant. Um, I, I mean, I was nearly carnivore anyway, but I felt I felt amazing. And then um, in February, I did grass fedgery, where I just ate grass fed beef and lamb. And it was from a pasture for life, organic farm, brilliant place in the Scottish borders called Peelham Farm. Um, and I supplemented it with little uh, grass-fed mince, which is like 70% grass-fed. Um, and I started to feel rubbish. Like I couldn't, I was, I was grasping for words. I couldn't get my word recall properly. And I thought, well, what's the difference with McTober? And it was the egg yolks. So I, I supplemented with choline, which I thought maybe the thing involved in neurotransmission that might have uh, made the difference. And my word recall came back. So I thought, well, I'm abandoning this because I don't feel very good. And, um, I, you know, the fat ratios were pretty much the same. I was eating lots of beef dripping. The pasture for life meat is scientifically proven to be higher in nutrition than even the already very good McDonald's beef, which is just British beef. Um, so there was something that I needed that I wasn't getting. And, so I I thought well I'll just I'll go back to intuitive eating and I I went back to eating loads of egg yolks um whole eggs as well a lot of the time fish shellfish and I feel brilliant again mm. um and I you know I'm, I I quite enjoy doing desserts as well it's not something that everyone does and some people find that they can't moderate very well when they use sweetener but um you know I've I've taken to making this uh, kind of like a creme caramel which I'm going to put the recipe up online soon um, because I think it's a winner. But it's egg yolks, bit of erythritol, bit of vanilla, some caramel flavour, and um, some gelatin. And it's and I I can eat, you know, eight or ten egg yolks like that. Yeah. So yeah, do, you, do you? Sorry, Rachel. Do you do? Sorry. Anything, sorry. sorry. <laughs> do you do anything with the egg whites? Do you just throw them away, or do you do anything with the egg whites when you're having egg yolks? In the past, I've uh, tried to do something with them because it feels like such a waste, but I think there's hardly any nutrition in it. So I kind of feel like I'm buying the eggs for the nutrition and the yolk. So, mm -hmm. uh, you know, I quite often do eat the whites um, if I'm having fried or poached eggs, but there's something about it. I struggle to eat more than, say, four or so at a time, but the yolks, not so. And uh, so I just I just throw them away. And sorry, Rachel, I'm, I've got one more question around egg yolks. Do you eat them raw or do you cook them? I make that creme caramel raw. Yeah, I you mean, don't. all the British eggs are uh, inoculated against salmonella. So I I, I personally think it's okay. Um, I think pregnant women and children and the elderly probably should think twice. But um, I think it's uh, it's probably not too bad. Yeah. Sorry, Rachel, you... No, no, no. Um, there are a couple of things, but probably the main thing was just 
um, Ali and I had an interesting conversation just following his experiments he was detailing there. And I find myself as well gravitating towards including a lot of egg yolks in my diet. And then ghee would be the fat that I kind of favor uh, towards. Um, and again, picking up on the egg white issue, I, I think whole eggs are incredibly satiating and such a great, great source of nutrition and generally inexpensive um, source of very bioavailable protein. Um, unfortunately, I'm not one of these those people who can tolerate the white, so I do also discard them. But but again, most of the nutrition um, is in the yolks. Mm. Excellent. So, Rachel, as as well as being and uh, having trained in the medical profession, you're also a functional medicine doctor yeah, or functional so, medicine practitioner. And what's the right term? Yeah, practitioner, I think, is technically the correct term in terms of my qualification. Um, so what's the and, difference for listeners that might not know what functional medicine is? Yeah, so allopathic medicine is um, what I trained in in terms of medical school and then my subsequent practice um, all these years within the NHS. And it's very much um diagnosis focused um you know make a diagnosis and then prescribe an appropriate treatment um i've kind of found as time has gone on i agree less and less with the the separation amongst the different medical specialties so the silos that, that the different specialties get into and I've always had such an interest in just holistic health in general or natural type methods of treatment um and so functional medicine is really in my mind, um, much more holistic in its approach and it approaches the body, not from a set of systems, but yes, you need to know about all those systems, but really a viewpoint that they all interact with one another. And that's very much where I'm coming from now in terms of mental health and the up-to-date research that really underpins the fact that there are many metabolic abnormalities that seem to drive mental health disorders um, and it's all very complex and all different systems interact in terms of hormonal systems and stress response and the gut brain axis. And, you know, it's not just our brains that we're thinking of here. Everything is really connected and there's a very complex relationship between all. Um, so functional medicine um, does place a lot of emphasis on gut health. And I think that's probably where my interest uh, stems from in relation to the gut brain axis. Um, but that's because... A lot of our immune system resides in the gut, as do a lot of neurotransmitters. And there's just more and more research coming out in terms of the microbiome and and, and the microbiome's influence on our health overall. Mm. So. Yeah. So I've been, I think I've been in the alternative health space, not necessarily working, although I have worked for quite a number of years in this space. I would say probably the last 20 years, my focus on my health has been around um, using complementary alternative mm -hmm. medicines rather than going to the doctor. Um, funny that I never wanted to address the nutrition side of it or change my diet. And I ha and I did change my diet over the years and I went through a phase of being vegetarian and um, phase of being gluten-free and all sorts of things like that. Mm -hmm. But I never could stick to it. And and I know why now that, you, you know, it's quite hard to do that because we're not meant to do that, in my opinion. Um, so I've, you know, I really 
get that you're saying you know about functional medicine and and how important that is to take the whole body as a system is really mm-hmm. very important can you tell us a bit more about gut microbiome and the gut brain axis because i remember when my boys were little no little um follicles probably <laughs> um that um even then they knew that the the brain stems from the intestines and they there was a connection there can you talk to us more about that and how that affects brain health oh yeah the, i mean there's so many different connections so um there's a hardwired neurological connection in terms of the vagus nerve but also some other um, nervous system signaling that happens from the gut to the brain but we know from research that there's um, bi-directional communication between those two different organs um, along the neurological pathways but also hormonal signaling and immune system signaling so cortisol is very much involved um, and then the hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis comes into that um, but also immune signaling in the form of cytokines, so kind of pro-inflammatory immune molecules. And I mean, the example I always tend to give people when it comes to how gut health might impact on brain health, I all automatically think of gluten, (laughs) just because I really don't think gluten has a place in anyone's diet. And it's not just about celiac disease. So um, we know that well, gliadin, which is just a kind of wheat protein component, interacts with a receptor in the intestine wall and opens up the tight junctions to give you leaky gut um, or increased intestinal permeability. And once you have that, it means that kind of toxins and bacterial particles and molecules, food antigens and so on can leak out of the gut into the systemic bloodstream. And then that can trigger off an immune reaction and inflammation. And then oxidative stress comes into it. And um, there's some really interesting studies out there in, in terms of autism, um, including some post-mortem brain studies, um, looking at kind of altered expression of genes and proteins that regulate these tight junctions in both the gut and the brain in terms of the blood-brain barrier. Um, So basically, once you have inflammation in the gut, it can trigger off an immune response and you end up driving inflammation at the level of the blood brain barrier and also some of the immune cells within your brain. Um, So microglia is one group of immune cells that also become involved in um, becoming reactive and then leading to inflammation in the brain or neuroinflammation. Mm. And um, and I guess that... um as a younger person who might be having mental health issues because of, and it, and maybe it's around gluten and, and the proteins in the gluten and in the wheat and other grains yeah, is possibly influencing, you know, what happens in later life around dementia and Alzheimer's and stuff that we know has been going on for years before we get to that point, but it's probably we don't realize how much that's impacting us now and setting us up for deterioration as we move on in life. Absolutely. And and one of the big factors in that seems to be um, having high levels of insulin over the course of your lifetime. So hyperinsulinemia um, is associated with all sorts of chronic health conditions, um, particularly mental health disorders. And then 
you develop insulin resistance at the level of the blood brain barrier and you end up with dysfunctional glucose metabolism within the brain. Mm. And so we know that that can happen decades before anyone even develops any symptoms of dementia. Yeah. Fabulous. So I'm very aware of our time and that you have a time limit. So is there anything that we haven't spoken about that you'd like to mention before we go on to say how people can find out about you and then go on to your top tips? Well, I'd just like to echo what Rachel said about the about the gut being so important and you know the gluten side of things and to some extent dairy proteins mm-hmm. um are kind of smoking guns as far as I'm concerned mm-hmm. in a lot of autoimmune and, and mental health problems. Yeah. And you know, I think even people in the low carb space who are fully on board with the idea that hyperinsulinemia is a bad idea would be stunned by some of the research on these types of proteins disrupting the gut and the downstream effects that it can have on mental health. And, you know, I see it with clients where um, they can have a kind of fall off the wagon and they have a, you know, a, a McDonald's or something and they have a sort of borderline psychotic episode where they're having kind of magical thinking and um, problems with reference and um, thinking that people are talking about them and stuff. You know, wheat can actually precede psychosis. Mm. Um, and I think once people realize that that connection is real, it gives them such a powerful tool because it's so hard to stay away, ironically, from the things that sometimes cause us the worst issues. Yeah. Um, I'm still not totally clear on why that is, um, but I think there's multiple things going on. And I think that's the human side of it again. You have to individualize it and realize that it's a you know a successful coaching relationship is about marrying really good information with working out what works for you. Yes. Yes, because we're all different and we all respond differently and we all like different things and that's what makes us individuals. But I would also echo what Rachel said about gluten probably not being a good idea for anyone yeah. because some people might take what we just said as carte blanche Oh, I don't have any problems with gluten. I don't feel mentally unwell at all. I don't even feel uh, ill in my stomach. But, you know, Rachel can back this up uh, clinically. Sometimes celiac is only diagnosed when um, people get cancer mm-hmm. that's, you know, caused by it, gluten um, and latent celiac. So I think um, that's a big one, you know, that, that low carb doesn't necessarily f- fix because you can still eat gluten you know there's there's companies selling low carb mm. breads and stuff that have um that have gluten added because it gives you that chew uh, yeah. in, the, in the in the in the bread product so um yeah cool so if people want to find out more how can they get in touch with you yeah just signing up if people want to know more about the kind of small group coaching and our course and any other coaching that is available it's at um, www.metside.com and um, that's probably the best way yeah and we'll put a link so it's m-e-t-p-s-y but we'll put a, a link in the show notes as well any social media stuff that you want to share yeah my main channel's twitter and i'm at ali transforms a-l-l-y transforms because i'm obsessed with you know the when i studied physics i realized that they used to call it natural philosophy until the 90s 
my dad was a philosopher. And uh, so I quite like dwelling on the philosophical aspect of, of science. And I'm obsessed with this, you know, Heraclitus quote where he said that a person tries to jump in the same river twice, but it's not it's the not same the, river and it's not the same man. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> and so Ali transforms and it also gives me a really wide wiggle room for just changing my mind all the time about things. Yeah. <laughs> Fabulous. And Ra- Rachel, Rachel's Instagram's brilliant. Oh, right. Yes. Yeah, so I'm on Instagram as carnivore shrink. Mm. Um, and I, I don't know why I just find Instagram a lot easier to use than Twitter. So, so that's me. Yeah, I'm not a great Twitter fan. <laughs> I'm not any social media fan, actually. But there you go. Um, so let's finish with your top tips. Rachel, do you want to go first? Yeah, sure. So my first top tip is for people to know themselves. Um, so I think it's really important to work out if anyone's considering any sort of lifestyle change, just what is their why, what's their reason, but also what's important to them and what might work for one person doesn't necessarily work for the next. So it's really just about doing a self-reflection and and partly knowing what sort of personality type you are. Um, so I spoke about that in my book, but it seemed to be broadly two groups of people. Um, one of them's one of them fall into the groups of moderators and the other ones are abstainers and um I don't know that it's necessarily that easy for people in one group to understand people in the other group um but anyway we can talk about about that more um and we certainly will be in our course Mm. um I think second tip is just to get support so I I think support is crucially important for people um because let's face it I, I think there's a lot of bad advice out there and what the average person might be choosing to do in terms of diet and lifestyle won't necessarily align nicely with what we might be discussing in the course or with a very low carbohydrate lifestyle. And so it's really helpful to have people around you who've been on that journey before and have made their own mistakes to be able to to guide people to hopefully not have to go through the same mistakes. Yeah. So I, mm. I say with that, because there's loads of information out there um and it can get to the point where somebody is so overwhelmed that they don't know even where to start um but with the support you in and there's so many different ways of doing even even low carb or even keto there's so many different ways you could do it and i think you need somebody who has worked in it and um ali's a health coach and i'm a primal health coach and and you know about moxis and so we we're all in a, in a place where we have probably have a lot of knowledge um, that we can help somebody decipher what might be best for them. And, you know, maybe we might be right, maybe we might be wrong, but at least we're giving somebody choices that they can look at and say, well, that works for me or that doesn't. Yeah. And and it sort of truncates that journey so that they're, they're making pro- progress quicker because they're not having to trial and error lots of different things by themselves yeah absolutely and I think that leads on to my third tip which is just question everything that's one of my life's <laughs> philosophies um, and that comes just through oh gosh various experiences but really we would encourage people to do their own research and to think critically and um, we will be giving people 
information rooted in science but I always think it's important for people to feel comfortable with that information and to do whatever reading around it that they feel they need to do to, to make sure that they're being true to themselves um, in terms of their intentions. Yeah brilliant thank you. Ali? Yeah hopefully mine are complimentary. Um, I would say that you know personalizing your own health journeys is super important. I, when I um, quit smoking it wasn't because I knew that it would probably kill me if I kept doing it it was because I've was, I read a paper that you know the, the dopamine uh, hit that you're getting pretty much 80% of your dopamine comes from the nicotine so you're sort of I felt like I was unnaturally regulating my emotional landscape what I'm trying to get at is that nobody probably could have guessed that mm. when I quit smoking and so it's about your goals it's about your motivation. So that would be my first step is just like work out what your goals are and yeah. own them. You know, no, it doesn't matter what anyone else wants to do with their health. It's about what you want to do. Yeah. And everybody will be different. Yeah. And then the the second one is um, to do things that you love. So build in foods that you love. You know, that's what I think makes it really sustainable for me is working out what I really like. And regardless of what my favorite diet gurus might say, um, I'll I'll do what I like and see if it works for me. Because um, I think that makes it sustainable. If I can do it every day and I like doing it. Yeah. And life is short, so why shouldn't you do what you love? Yeah, absolutely. Um, hopefully it's longer when you eat right, but absolutely <laughs> take your point. <laughs> Who knows? Yeah, just better. At least yet- better. Yeah. As I say, I want to live long and just drop dead. That's a Marxism thing. Live long. Oh, yeah. Just fall off the top of the cliff and not deteriorate into old age. <laughs> Absolutely. long, uh, Not necessarily long lifespan, long health span. That's what we're mm-hmm. after. Exactly. Um, and then the, the third one would kind of, you know, I, I, said, I, I don't think my mum would forgive me if I didn't shout her out after shouting out my dad. She's a counsellor. So I think the big final tip is and this is one that I set as a challenge to a lot of my coaching clients if there's not any particular accountability that they want for that session is try to ask yourself every day if you're being kind to yourself mm. um, because I think the answer usually surprises people and um, it's a remarkably simple way to uh, refocus what's important. I think we can be very hard on ourselves. Our inner saboteur tells us we're not good enough or there's no point in trying stuff or we'll just fail anyway. And it, it's not the advice that we would give to a, a close friend or a loved one. And I think just stopping every day and asking, am I being kind to myself, is quite a powerful tip. Very, very important and one that very few of us do. Myself included, I'm, I'm guilty of getting caught up in my own, um, you know, negative thoughts. Uh, I've named my saboteur. That's a, a funny exercise uh, that, that uh, I don't want to add a fourth tip here. But um, <laughs> oh, Go on, go on. <laughs> yeah, my, my, I, I named my saboteur Alan the Sneaky Bastard because... <laughs> <laughs> so I, I start believing the, the negative inner monologue and then I realise it's not me. It's, uh, it's Alan. 
Alan the sneaky bastard again. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And sometimes it goes on for a while before you even notice it and can pick up on it. So. Yeah. Yeah. And it diffuses it if you know that it's just part of you. It's not you. Yeah. Just an inner chatter. That's always looking to undermine you if it had the chance. <laughs> so thank you very much for joining me. Um, it's been brilliant to find out more. And I think oh, one of the things I was going to say, because a couple of weeks ago I interviewed um, Danielle Eagle and she was talking about the benefits of open water, cold swimming for mental health. And so I think this links in really well with um the cold water swimming for mental health and now we're again you know there's another way to help so that's been really brilliant and I think it's you know it's on the rise we're seeing it all the time and and like Rachel said through lockdowns it's got worse we need to we need to be able to help people so you're doing a brilliant job thank you thank you yeah thanks for having us It doesn't surprise me that there's been a huge increase in mental health issues because of the lockdowns we were subjected to. We are social animals and we need to mix with other humans and to be connected to our communities. And I hope we never let them impose that on us again because the long-term effects we've yet to see. If you think back thousands of years, we would have lived in tribes and leaving the tribe would have been sure death. Despite thinking we are much more evolved and independent nowadays, we haven't changed much from our ancestors. We need contact both socially and physically. We need to be with other people in our communities, whether that's a community where we live or a community that we socialize in or a family uh, context, there's all different communities. So for me personally, I know that I have my family community, I have my friends community, and I have a couple of groups of friends. I have my swimming community, I have my taekwondo community, and they're all different communities, but we all come together and enjoy being together. Also, in my opinion, Processed food is really impacting mental health by changing hormones and the function of our whole system. And as Dr. Rachel said, the gut microbiome is being changed by these processed foods that more and more people are eating more and more of. So it's not surprising that we're seeing the increase in mental health issues. And I know it's not the only thing that's impacting. Um, but I'm sure it has a big impact. And anecdotally, we've spoken to many people whose mental health has improved with changing their eating. So if you listen back over lots of our podcasts, there's lots of people who have mentioned how their mental health has improved. So if you want to find the show notes with the links to Metsai, to Ali and Rachel, just go to fabulouslyketo.com forward slash podcast forward slash 139.
It would be great if you could support us through Patreon. Go to patreon.com forward slash fabulously keto and you can choose the monthly amount you wish. Can you recommend a guest we can interview? If you can, click on the link in the show notes to send us your recommendation. Would you like to join our Facebook group? Search for Fabulously Keto on Facebook. Our Facebook page is called Fabulously Keto and you can follow us there. Or you can follow us on Twitter. Our handle is Fabulously Keto. Or follow us on Instagram, Fabulously Keto 1. Did you enjoy the show? Let us know you listened by tagging us in your Insta story or Instagram post using the handle Fabulously Keto 1 and the hashtag TFKP. All the links are on the website and in the show notes. If you haven't subscribed to the podcast, click the subscribe button. Reviews help us to be found and reach new listeners. Please leave a review of our show on your preferred podcast listening platform. We appreciate you taking the time and read them all. Disclaimer. The information in this podcast is for informational and educational purposes only. Nothing in this podcast can be taken as advice. Whether our guests are doctors, healthcare professionals or not, they're only sharing their own opinions and stories and this does not constitute a doctor-patient relationship. It's always best to seek professional medical advice should you wish to make any changes to your current medication or treatments. Also speak to your own doctor if you have any concerns about your health or you wish to make lifestyle changes, especially if you're taking medication. <laughs>